Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I'm coming to you not every other week this week because we just released a podcast yesterday and now I'm sitting with my boss, uh, Fire President and CEO, Greg Lukianoff. How are you doing, Greg? You know, all things considered, pretty good. Yeah, I wanted to do an update for our listeners about kind of what's going on with fire and the coronavirus. And you also wrote a very interesting article that surprisingly in this time where people are, seem to be thinking about everything except freedom of speech, <laughs> uh, for good reason, of course. Uh, you wrote an article about the coronavirus and the failure of the marketplace of ideas, kind of synthesizing some of your thoughts about the marketplace of ideas theory of freedom of expression. And it got a lot of traction. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, the, the, the scale of people reading it kind of surprised me. The fact that it got picked up and re- recommended by the Washington Post editorial board was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And it's now. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a long read think piece, you know, like the, so I was like, okay. That you, right? you kind of slapped together for uh, Fire's website. You're I, starting a blog. I, I, I didn't slap it together. I dictated it to my phone when I was doing dishes. <laughs> 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 well, but it is something I thought about for a long time. Yeah, to, be, and, to, to be clear, that's why it was easy. And you had kind of teased it in an article you written. You had written for CNET, CNET yeah. in 2013. But I want to kind of hold off sure, on sure. discussing this article and rather talk about Fire right now. Yep. Fire had sent its employees home. Yeah. Uh, last week, right? Monday, last, I think actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a little bit before other companies and the government had kind of recommended that. Yeah, we we, we, res- we tried to respond earlier th- than most people. The, um, uh, you know, a lot of us were just kind of following what the trajectory of the disease was, you know, what the range of things we knew about it. And, you know, we, we definitely were well aware that this thing was going to be really bad. And the good thing about fire is that um, a lot of what we can do, not not quite everything, but close to it can actually be done remotely. So there, it became more of a why not we also tried to make sure that all the staff know that given a lot of us, including me, we all have our you know kids kids back and not really anybody else who can take care of them. Um, so we wanted to be flexible with schedules. We um, you know want to make sure that people were supported in, in in every way. So so the first step was to place the staff first and make sure that they are you know uh, as I've been saying a lot safe and sane. Yeah. Well. Lucky for us, a lot of the work that we do can be done yeah. online. Uh, as our listeners know, there was a two-plus-year period where I was working from home in New York City. And yeah. uh, so for me, it's not it's like not missing a beat. It's yeah. just going back to what I was doing a year and a half ago. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because like, so, like it's amazing how, how many things haven't changed, you know, um, after this massive switch because we, you know, the number of case submissions we get now, we get uh, get around 1,000 each year. 1,000 plus, yeah. 1,000 yeah, plus. Every year it goes up. Every year it goes up. Um, and so there are a lot of cases uh, at on campus where we, you know, uh, where we have to play catch up. So for, and, and that's going to last months. We're, we're, we're going to be, um, catching up with uh, with case submissions that we had before the, um, the coronavirus for for quite some time now. Yeah, our listeners are probably aware of this, but most colleges and universities in the United States <laughs> have moved online or closed right now, either because of spring break or they're just delaying. Uh, they're, they're, there's a kind of a a lot of universities are taking different approaches I, I to ca- it. I can hardly believe that this was. I think just last Tuesday, um, but I. 
was supposed to give a, a speech at Middlebury, the, the the scene of the assault of Allison Stanger, you know, wonderful um, professor, one of the most compassionate people I've ever met, who has been permanently injured, but in the process of trying to defend Charles Murray, who she disagrees with in that horrible incident. At she was going to be the moderator or the interlocutor during yeah, that event in 2017. So you know, I I was invited, and um, I get to I fly all the way up there. I'm like eating lunch, getting ready for my talk, and they're like. Um, they decided to shut down campus. And I'm like, I called yesterday to let you guys know that I was, I, I wanted to make sure that the, the, this thing was still going on, but I apparently was a low priority. Yeah, Middlebury was on our 10 worst colleges for free speech list this, this year as well for yeah. what it did last year with the Richard Lashutko, I forget how to pronounce his last name, his Polish politician yeah. who was invited to campus and then was actually on campus when they decided that they weren't going to host the event anymore. Uh-huh. So, uh, oh, wait. So I didn't realize that's exactly what happened to him, too. I mean, of course, the reason <laughs> for different for, reasons, yeah, of for, course. Yeah, the reason for me is, is, is totally different, but it was still like, could you have told me this six hours ago? You know, uh, anyway. Yeah, we're in a luckier position than, uh, of course, a lot of workers in the United States insofar as we can do our work online mm. and uh, we have the generous support of our our donors who help keep us going during the, these difficult times. And, uh, but we also, we also have a lot of big projects that were in the works that this will give us some time to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, some of the most exciting stuff that we're doing is stuff that can very easily be done offline. And one of the things I am the most excited about, and Nico can talk a lot more about this, mm-hmm. is our documentary uh, about uh, Ira Glasser. Yeah, I've talked about it a little bit on this podcast before, but for our listeners who haven't heard me talk about it. We haven't officially announced it yet, and I don't know that we will until later in the summer. But for the past three years, I've been working on a passion project about the life and career uh, with a particular focus on the free speech career of Ira Glasser, who ran the ACLU from 1978 to 2001 as its executive director. He worked at the New York Civil Liberties Union a little bit before that, but then he retired in 2001. I had met him when I was at Nat Hentoff's funeral. Yeah. He had approached me with Norman Siegel, who— Oh, and just to be clear, for people people uh, will know this name and some won't. Nat Hentoff is one of the great free speech champions of the previous century, um, and he was a big fan of FIRE. He was on our board of advisors. I'd get calls from him sometimes at 10 a.m. Um, uh, on a Sunday morning. Actually, I got one, you know, uh, what, 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 the day after my 40th birthday party. Yeah. Um, but he's he, he was a real force— yeah, and it was also a great champion of jazz, kind of developed yes. uh, liner notes, which are notes on songs in the records yeah. as an art, yeah. essentially. He was a great, great writer, and anyone who's Greg's assistant probably had interactions <laughs> with Nat. Uh, he did not like to use the computer, so would often ask for our press releases and other materials to be faxed over. Yeah. There was one time where he asked when we did a website redesign for our old website to be faxed to him. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite understanding the undertaking that that is. Yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, he, if you sent him anything more than six or seven pages, uh, you know, it would jam up his machine. So he'd, he'd be mad about that. There's a great documentary about him, I should oh, mention yeah. as well, called The Pleasures of Being Out of Step yep. uh, that was put out maybe around 2013. And it's it's fantastic. I think you can find it on online streaming. Uh, I watched it, of course, after he's, he passed. But I was at his funeral. I was approached by Norman Siegel and Ira Glasser, who knew Michael Myers from the New York uh, Civil Rights Coalition. Uh, I was talking with him. They know they know Michael. And Michael told them, introduced them to me, said, I work at FIRE. And they said, oh, we love FIRE. You do what we used to do, essentially. And I was like, well, who are you? What did you, what did you used to do? <laughs> well, uh, and, then, and then they explained, and I was just kind of blown away that I, that I didn't know them because they had kind of retired – 
you know, well, uh, Norman's still working in private practice, but he he's no longer at the New York Civil Liberties Union. Ira retired, what, 19 years ago? Mm. Uh, anyway, we, we connected. I got their information, and I ended up recording a, a podcast with Ira Glasser. I yeah. came over to my apartment in New York City, and I wanted to talk to him about free speech and what he did. And when I reached out to him, he said, I, you know, I might not remember a lot. And oh, I was please. like, okay, well, we'll, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Two and a half hours later, uh, I could have gone for another two and a half hours. Ira is amazing. Yeah, he's he, got a steel he, trap he's mind. Brilliant. He's charming. He's funny. He's about the, one of the most principled people you ever meet in your life. And you know, uh, so uh, Nico doesn't have to toot his own horn. Um, N- Nico decided to do this as a passion project, and I try to encourage this among fire employees. If there's something that they want to do that's related to our mission, that's outside of the box or cool, I'm like, run with it. And uh, he, along with our, our, our video people... Um, yeah, yeah, Aaron uh, Reese and Chris Maltby have been instrumental. Pretty much on, on, on his own time, made this documentary that is absolutely fabulous. It's it's really excellent. I'm excited for the world to see it. And now we're trying to figure out, when do we release this, if the plague is still about? <laughs> yeah, the plan was to release it sometime later this year. I mean, the, it, it's picture locked. It's done. The only things that need to be done are it needs to be color corrected. It needs to be... The audio needs to be mixed together, but before the audio can be mixed together, the composition, <laughs> the scoring needs to be done, which is actually happening right now. I've heard some of the tracks from our composers. They are fantastic, but the challenge is we have a string quartet who's recording on, who's scheduled to record on April 10th in California, which is now on lockdown, mandatory uh, yep. <laughs> shelter in place. So we're going to see what happens with that. Hopefully this doesn't mess with our schedule. There have been a lot of things that I've learned in this process that have slowed it down. We're not, we're first time filmmakers. Uh, I, I feel like I've gotten an advanced degree in filmmaking. Uh, but we're hopeful that by come May, we can get it done and get it distributed. The, the big plan is of course, to have it available for everyone on yeah. streaming platforms. Uh, whether how we release it is kind of up in the air. If yeah. there are any listeners who know any distributors or sales agents who might be interested in this sort of project, uh, let us know a, a little bit more about the project. It's about Ira's life and career, about him growing up in Brooklyn, about him being a Dodgers fan, about his friendship with William F. Buckley, but also his involvement in the, the ACLU's Skokie case. Yeah. And also his perspective on Charlottesville, kind of drawing parallels. Yeah. Skokie, of course, is when the ACLU defended um, Illinois Nazis, literally, um, a right to protest. Um, and it was you know, sort of disastrous on the, on the short term for the ACLU. But, you know, some of us who are coming up, you know, when I was a kid in the 1980s, hearing about a group that was so principled, it would defend its most bitter enemies. And keep, keep in mind, like, these were, um, a lot of cases, Jewish attorneys who were defending Nazis. Yeah. And, and it was just like, wow, that, they really mean this. They really believe. And so that's honestly, like, I went to law school to do First Amendment law. I worked at the ACLU because of those stories. So um, honoring the um, absolute to the core principle of someone like Ira Glasser is just thrilling for me. Yeah, and the main attorney in the case was David Goldberger, who is, of course, Jewish, and he's he's featured in the documentary. of the, the I should note that the executive director of the ACLU at the time of the Skokie case was a guy named Aryeh Nair, who wrote a great, Oh, my God, fantastic Defending My Enemy is one of the great free speech classics. Yeah, and he's we have a podcast with him. If you want to listen to it, we, I also recommend you listen to our podcast with, with Ira. Uh, but Ira was the head of the New York Civil Liberties Union during the Skokie case, uh, had a big part in kind of defending the ACLU's position on the East Coast, especially mm. in New York City where there's a large Jewish population. But he took over the ACLU months after the case had kind of closed. Yeah. So he helped 
with the fallout and yeah. bring the ACL, you know, pull pull the ACLU up of the debt that it was in, not just because of the, the Skokie case, um, although the, they did lose some members as a result of it. But his story is fantastic. It's not just about Skokie. It's not just about free speech. It's about much, much more. It's about talking across lines of difference, friendships across yeah. party lines. He was friends with William F. Buckley. Um, and, and, and as far as, like, they couldn't disagree more on every single political issue. But it is a reminder of what, what it looks like to be a happy warrior, what it looks like to be someone who is comfortable with people disagreeing with him, comfortable with people even hating him in some cases, and goes about with 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 cheer and reason. Yeah, yeah. There's this great uh, scene in the documentary where I Ira or uh, Ira, yeah, and uh, William go on the subway together to a to a Mets baseball <laughs> Luckily, game. Luckily, had never been on the subway. I think never, he had been, never it, been thirty years before. Oh I think my God, yeah, yeah. yeah. never been to a baseball game, and so it's, it's actually kind of adorable. <laughs> yeah, uh, Buckley calls it his lacuna, which was a word I didn't I didn't know. I uh, existed hate, before that. Kind of hate the word lacuna. Yeah, it's like, I guess it means a gap in one's knowledge. Yeah, it's it, it it's it's like myriad. It's basically like, uh, why don't I use this fancy obnoxious word that means lots? <laughs> 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 uh, anyway, so we so you should know that I, I kind of sprung that on Nico a little bit. Um, I'm su- and I am genuinely super excited about Mighty Ira. Like I'm super excited about this uh, this this documentary, um, and I you know want to want to start talking it up. Other things we're doing, of course, is, uh, you know, we, we, one one of the things that FIRE was planning to do anyway that, um, you know, um, fits well, unfortunately, with having more time to do research um, is the fact that we really want to step up our educational efforts. Um, as far as an area that we really want to broaden our reach, um, it's teaching people about the principles, philosophy, uh, deep ideas um, uh, that undergird the law of the First Amendment and, and, and beyond that. So this includes, you know, stepping up our high school outreach, which we've already done. Um, we had a curriculum that we developed for high schools um, that we managed to get out just as people were um, uh, starting to send all the kids home. So we, yeah. we had a huge uptick in the people downloading our curriculum, by all means, download our curriculum. Um, uh, we're working on several reports. Uh, I- I'm actually launching a blog called The Eternally Radical Idea. Um, of course, that refers to free speech. I know it's kind of goofy to launch a blog in 2020, but I miss having my platform at the Huffington Post, which I had for almost 10 years, where I could just directly publish things. Now, I try to be clear. I'm not, I don't have the time to publish there all the time, but for articles like I recently wrote, um, the, the coronavirus, coronavirus one and the failure marketplace of ideas, it's nice to be able to just have a place where I can write it exactly how I want to write it and get it up pretty quickly. Yeah. So this was essentially the the op- opening salvo in your the eternally radical idea blog. So we're really excited about it, and it's actually the blog is is up on the website right now. It only has this article and, yeah. and your past things you've written for outside publications. And, and, and this might be uh, Nikki Eastman, um, who was our graphic designer person. She created a logo for it, an image for it that I am just absolutely thrilled about. It's a um, elliptical orbit of, of a blue planet around a yellow sun. And it's an exaggerated elliptical orbit because actually it turns out that the, you know, the sun is uh, our orbit around the earth is surprisingly close to a circle. Um, but Johannes Kepler, you know, figured out this idea, um, figured out just by looking at the math that the Earth actually goes around in an egg-shaped orbit um, in which the sun is not really at the center in this kind of whipping kind of mash. And it even goes at different speeds as if it's falling towards the Earth and then being slingshotted back. And I wanted that there because, one, it shows heliocentrism, which was one of the original eternally radical ideas. And, it also, and also the weirdness of being like, 
it's not a perfect circle. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought everything in heaven should be perfect, <laughs> you know. Like, uh, and it's it's kind of the opening of 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 um the discovery of, of I don't know who the thinker who coined this, but it's such a great t- term: the discovery of ignorance. Mm. So people talk about the scientific revolution, but really, to a degree, the scientific revolution was learning. Wait a second. We know like nothing. Like we're ju- we've just been guessing. We've been listening to ancient people's opinions on stuff that none of them ever tested, except Aristotle to a l- very limited degree. Um, and it turns out our senses lie to us, our intuitions are wrong, superstitions don't seem to have any real basis. Um, And that's, you know, that's the original eternally radical idea that essentially we aren't very smart. Uh, We only become smart through testing. And simply to know the smallest thing about reality is an ongoing everyday struggle. Mm -hmm. So this is, of course, what your title, your blog is referenced to. I want to get to that that first blog post in yeah. your blog. But yes. before we do, I also want to talk about another big project we're working on right now, which is our, our campus climate surveys. Oh, yeah. Really excited about that. I mean, what you, uh, I believe it was in December or maybe even November, you had put out five things that college presidents can do on yeah. their campus. One of them was survey their campus on fire, you know, fire-related issues. Uh, how, how well is the, how good is the climate for free speech, open discourse, mm-hmm. uh, free inquiry, academic freedom? We don't know many colleges that have taken us up on that yet. Uh, <laughs> UNC. Ho- uh, UNC. University of North Carolina. And we actually came out with this in July. I just got kind of, I'm going to write about this in the blog. I got sidelined by health issues, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Wait, did that, did that really come out in July? It came out in July. Oh. Um, yeah, it's time. Even a week ago seems forever. A week ago seems like forever and July seems like last week. Yeah. (laughs) My sense of time is all messed up, but we're, we're taking it into our own hands and trying to do individual campus climate surveys on a, on a large scale, 50 campuses. And it partially came from, we got really animated about this because, um, and you know, in Coddling the American Mind, my book with John Haidt and within Fire, we, we kind of take for granted that some campuses are relatively fine and some campuses are incredibly conformist. Um, and uh, we did a national survey, uh, but we didn't know there was any way to do individual ground surveys. And we, we, uh, I visited Haverford um, uh, a year ago. Um, Nico visited Williams, and we both came back. Uh, and, I, and to be clear, I'd done actually a series of sort of like more working class schools in a row and was kind of uh, faced, um, you know, classic issues, you know, like administrative administrators are overriding their power, that some of the things wasn't political at all. It was more like don't embarrass the university. And I started to get, you know, lulled into a sense of complacency, even though I knew that schools um, that were more working class um, and less elite uh, would have different kinds of problems, even though I'd said it a million times. But then I went to Haverford and w- w- was told by students that, you know, a lot of people have just given up talking about serious stuff. And it was kind of horrifying. I was like, wow, this this is seems um, like a really awful environment for, for, for people to have uh, disagreement. And you went to Williams. Can you t- t- yeah, I went to Williams and I was invited there by a group of students who wanted to have a panel discussion about free speech on college campuses, in particular at Williams, which had had some free speech controversies uh, at the time, and I think still continues to have free speech controversies. And I was just kind of struck by how the culture of self-censorship that existed there and the discouraging of open discourse, if it didn't fit some sort of predetermined orthodoxy, there just didn't seem to be enough ideological diversity on the campus to to encourage the sort of dynamic thinking that I remember when I was on, uh, on campus, you know, a decade ago. And you and I have spent a lot of time at college campuses and, uh, you know, I've spent time on campuses that are good time on campuses that aren't so good. Uh, but Williams was the worst that I've been to. And 
it just so happened that at this time there was another company that was starting up called College Pulse, mm-hmm. which was developing a way national panel of college students, uh, large panels at individual colleges that would give us the means to test or to ask questions of a large enough sample, a representative sample on individual college campuses. So that's kind of what we're doing to learn about the culture at colleges like Williams, at colleges like Haverford. Now, I don't think those two are in our first sample. Um, We're doing some of the the larger ones first. I believe it's um, like the the largest top 50 schools or something like that. Our prediction is we're going to see some real difference uh, uh, between and among schools. Um, But, you know, we'll see. We we, we could be wrong. Because you always got to remember, for all the political stuff that goes on on campuses, there's probably at a lot of places kind of a big middle that just – doesn't care all that much, um, but we'll see. Um, it's it, 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 we're we're going in open minded to see what the, the stats actually. Yeah, are. we don't we don't really know because this hasn't really been done before. Yeah, uh, there have been a lot of national samples, especially it's around the 2017 2018 uh, years, but nothing quite like this. So we're excited and and we hope to have the data. Yeah, uh, released to all of you, and we'll I'm sure we'll do a podcast about it. In, yeah. oh. in the school year, early part of the next school and, year. And before we get to talk about my article, um, you know, one of the reasons why we decided to do this podcast was so that you know, people aren't constantly bombarded with how is, you know, District Taco holding up to a, a coronavirus? It's like my favorite. All those emails. Place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And people have been kind of overwhelmed by it. Um, but partially, you know, particularly for Fire fans, I did want to communicate um, that we're, you know, we're just going forward. Um, it is an opportunity for us to do some deeper research. Um, you know, some of the, we, uh, almost everybody at Fire has some kind of passion project that involves uh, deeper research that they uh, haven't had time for. And we're going to be doing that. But we're also, um, you know, going to um, try to come up with new and innovative content. Um, we're including, uh, should I tell, tell people about the, the, Why Supreme, not? the Supreme Court? Yeah. Um, we're doing audio versions of Supreme Court cases um, uh, read by narrators. You, you, th- there are software you can get that, that will read it to you, but I, but otherwise, I was really shocked to find that nobody's done audiobook versions of uh, classic uh, Supreme Court cases. And so Fire's going to be doing some of those in-house. Um, it'll probably be a relatively slow uh, uh, process. But the, uh, but the idea of having classic First Amendment cases um, so that people can just listen to them the same way uh, you listen to a podcast um, is, is, uh, is another way that we're trying to make learning about free speech uh, easy uh, and easier. And honestly, like uh, the, um, you know, f- for me, uh, I, you know, I can I talk about this stuff all the time, but I can't explain it better than West Virginia Board of Education v. Barnett, mm-hmm. uh, Texas v. Johnson, for goodness sakes. Th- these, these are beautiful um, – uh, beautifully written, you know, poems about free speech and philosophy. Now, the, the one thing that we're doing is we're adjusting the citations so that they're uh, more abbreviated so you don't end up with, like, a paragraph of someone saying blah, blah, blah. But as far as, like, innovative stuff that we're doing that I'm excited about, that's, you know, that's right at the top of the list. That should hopefully – we should, people should be able to access the first couple of those opinions here within the next month or so, yeah. I presume, um, by, by summer, of, of course. But I remember when I – was working at the Institute for Justice. One of my colleagues there, uh, Diana, I'll throw her name out there, was would listen to Supreme Court arguments mm. on her runs while she was working out, and we always thought that was that was kind of nerdy. But uh, <laughs> you know, you you need to listen. You, you think need... that's kind of nerdy? I should, <laughs> I should never open my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there, there's easy ways to access oral arguments, uh-huh. uh, but there aren't easy ways to access audio versions of opinions. Yeah. And this will give law students or anyone else who is interested in hearing these while they're doing dishes, yeah. while they're working out, uh, a way to do so. So we're, we're really excited about that, and we're really excited to be 
one of the first, if not the first place to do it. And our focus initially is going to be on the First Amendment. Yeah. Um, so do you want to talk about the article? Yeah. Yeah. So let's uh, let's uh, get started here. The aforementioned article, of course, is called Coronavirus and the Failure of the Marketplace of Ideas. Now, I think people are going to be a little bit surprised to hear a free speech advocate talk about the failure of the <laughs> yeah. marketplace of ideas because it's the marketplace of ideas, the search for truth. That's been one of the underlying values uh, boosting the First Amendment yeah. for the last century or so. We did talk a little bit about First Amendment values on our last podcast, and we might reference it a couple times. But why, Greg Luciano, <laughs> uh, free speech absolutist, are you saying there's a failure in one of the core values of the First Amendment and free speech in particular. Yeah, no, I, I kind of pulled a fast one a little bit there. Um, and it was funny because uh, as far as people you immediately discount are people who only read titles um, and, and don't actually read the article. <laughs> you mean 50, 50% yeah, exactly. of people so, who talk about anything? So, so I saw, you know, it got tweeted out by um, uh, Harmeet Dillon, which was great. But one of the first responses I got was like, well, that's the, that's the most ridiculous, outrageous title. And then it's just kind of like, well, read that's provocative. I'm try- uh, And really what I mean by the failure of marketplace ideas is pretty simple. Metaphors matter. They really affect the way we think about things. Um, you know, uh, we have less cognitive ability, I think, than we like to think we do. And we have to fall back on heuristics and little ways of uh, little other tricks uh, looking at things. And metaphors are dominant in that. And the marketplace of ideas metaphor um, is, you know, uh, it, it's kind of uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who came up with it, was a Darwinian. Um, he was a social Darwinian as well. He thought that um, life was basically a struggle of the fit against the not fit. Um, and in his understanding, uh, the you know, uh, not necessarily truth will always succeed, but it, but it's a battle that you sh- that should always be worth having. And by liking it to a marketplace, the idea is that you have all these ideas out there, and some people will buy some, and some people will buy others. Now, this is a very limited point of view. This is a very limited point of view um, when it comes to uh, free speech, in my opinion, because most of what we actually talk about has nothing to do about what, you know what, what you could call propositional truth. You know, mm-hmm. like um, that we sh- you know we, we should take a normative action in politics, or this scientific fact is true. Um, most of it is. Uh, I feel this way. This is my preference. Um, I'm angry about this. I'm willing to pay this much for a bottle of wine. Uh, like all of these kind of things. That's the real explosion of information that happened a- after um, with with the first great information age of, of the printing press. It wasn't uh, the discovery of objective truth. But if you listen to scholars uh, right now, I'm actually feeling particularly. Um, uh, grumpy about scholarship because um, I'm reading Karl Popper's um, uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies, where he takes vicious aim at Plato, and I love it. Like, it's just, like <laughs> it's just so great. Because if you listen to the way scholars talk about uh, big T truth, as I call it, they're talking about um, objective truth. And then they think they've got this kind of trump card to be kind of like, well, since we now know, you cannot know objective truth, or at least you can't know that you know objective truth. Um, this is irrelevant, and therefore I can replace um, this uh, uh, this myth with my own politics. Um, this is probably most in its most raw expression in the uh, l- lesser known dissent to the Yale Woodward Report, um, which was written in 1974. Woodward Report being like one of the great statements on free speech on campus. Um, and so what, I, what I'm saying it, in the article essentially is that uh, I'm trying to create a new metaphor, and I, and I don't know if I've done it 
uh, well enough. Um, but I, but I'm, giving, I'm giving it a shot. And that's one of the funny things, one of the great things about having a blog is I'll have the opportunity to experiment with, with ideas um, and with metaphors. So what I call it is the lab in the looking glass. That essentially, rather than thinking about this as a either Darwinian or capitalist battle between ideas that are either will, will, will rise or fall, what I'm saying is something much more expansive. That every single thing about humanity and about the world we live in is worth knowing. And this is, in my opinion, approaching truth uh, more like a scientist, more like someone studying, you know, human beings as if they're baboons, essentially, mm -hmm. um, th than about uh, what we think should happen politically. Uh, and I do actually think that's most of uh, most of what we use speech for. You're going to ask questions. Yeah. Well, you you call this coronavirus and the failure of the marketplace of ideas. How does coronavirus fit into this? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it was funny because uh, I was talking about this with Robert Shibley, the executive director, um, uh, about how this kind of shows my what I call pure informational theory of freedom of speech, yeah. um, and it shows it pretty well. And, I, and I, well, as I was talking it through, I'm like, oh wow, this isn't like a stretch. This actually pretty much exactly um, uh, explains what I've been trying to write for a very long time. Um, that essentially it's not about the success of arguments that's really important about speech, although that is a part of it. And, and to be clear, I don't think the marketplace of ideas is a useless idea. I just think it applies to a much smaller area of speech than, than, than um, is important for everyday life. But in this case, China um, shut down um, you know, people who were trying to be whistleblowers about the Wuhan, um, about the disease in Wuhan, about the coronavirus. Um, uh, they shut down individual bloggers. They really clamped down on information as if uh, unflattering information was the real virus that they, they had yeah, to Yeah, they stop. marshaled their great firewall. Yeah. And, censored terms, censored people from discussing this. And this was stuff that people like me and Sarah McLaughlin, who works for FIRE with a focus on I international abuses, um, we were both watching this going like, wow, we really just don't know what's happening there, but it's got to be bad if they're clamping down on it this much. And my point there is if – if it had been a more open society and we got to see that unflattering picture earlier, that unflattering, terrifying picture of, of this weird disease, um, we, could have, we could have responded to it quicker. And I talk about uh, the counterfactual of what would it look like if the, uh, if the coronavirus broke out in somewhere in the U.S. Um, I make the point that because we, we have very limited power to clamp down on speech in the U.S., um, you know, people will be on Twitter talking about it. People will be on Facebook talking about it. Um, they're, you know, they're, you, you run the risk of a small localized panic, sure. Mm -hmm. But we probably would under, understand that something serious was going on far, far earlier um, than we did, did in this circumstance and therefore could, could have responded to it. And this is my, my whole sort of pure informational. It's not, it's not as if people were – and of course some people were making propositional you know, arguments about factual truth. Other people were just saying, I'm frightened, I'm sick. Um, mm, you this know. thing is novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, and that's the kind of information that actually really, to a degree, kind of um, the, the world really relies on, not this sort of propositional factual statement. Yeah, the world relies on knowing the world as it is. Yes. Or as people – even if it's just knowing the world as people believe it is. Yeah. And and you wrote an article in CNET in 2013 making this argument – that, that article, which I'll link in the show notes, is called Twitter Hate Speech and the Costs of Keeping Quiet in the Context of Hate Speech. You, you essentially argued it's important to know the world as it is. Um, especially in those cases where people believe silly or even dangerous yeah. or stupid things. And, 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 uh, and I believe that thoroughly because I watch these – and I, basically my, my overall theory is I think people are thinking about the word truth wrong. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and uh, so what, one, one thing you see is kind of like a sleight of hand that people don't even realize they're doing is they're, they're looking at whether or not the factual assertion coming out of someone's mouth is true, and that's the important truth. And therefore, if you're a bigot um, and this is uh, you're saying something horrible, um, it's it's quote unquote low value speech. Mm-hmm. And my point is um, that knowing someone's a bigot, knowing someone believes in conspiracy theories, knowing someone actually believes the protocols of Zion is true, is an incredibly important thing to know about people. And this is where this is when on campus I say like, put on your anthropologist hat, put on your scientist hats. You want to understand the world you live in, and honestly, you do not stand a chance if you do not know what people really think. It's incredibly important to know. You know, conspiracy theories to a degree make, make make the world go round, and this kind of like limited kind of idea of like, well, is this the platonic form of the truth? Who cares? Um, d- d- is did Larry just confess that he's a Nazi? That's valuable. Yeah, that's what Harvey Silverglade yeah. always says. He says he wants to know who the Nazi is in the room, so he knows not to turn his back to them. Yeah, exactly. And, and Jonathan Jonathan Rausch, of course, has the great. Uh, metaphor where he says like censorship is like breaking the thermometer. Uh, <laughs> you know, it doesn't change the temperature. You just don't know what it is anymore. Yeah, it, 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 he says um, that's like breaking your thermometer in response to global warming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> essentially, ha! I can't know anymore. That'll that'll fix it. So you're essentially arguing against blissful ignorance. The uh-huh. idea that we can shut some sort of speech down or shut some sort of information down as China did with the coronavirus. Right. And that will make that information go away. Yes. And it won't. And it could, unfortunately, doing so could cause a pandemic. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I'm trying things like lab and the looking glass and pure informational theory of speech, try, trying to like figure out like what actually can, what's sticky, what, 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 what can be a good metaphor that talks more about this ex- expansive um, uh, vision of free speech. Um, but the uh, but I, I still think that probably like the the best way I've explained it is a somewhat uh, you know obnoxious quip um, about uh, forcing hate speech underground is like taking Xanax for syphilis. Um, sure, you feel better, you know, you, you took a Xanax. It's like I'm not worried anymore. Um, but it's not making. But your a horrible disease is still getting worse. As our listeners who listen to the last podcast know, uh, we kind of went over the three values that traditionally people have mm-hmm. argued undergird. Uh, our free speech uh, approach here in the United States. Those are that it's essential for democracy. Yep. Uh, you can't debate policy without people being able to debate policy or, or anything else for that matter. Individual autonomy, just the idea that yeah. myself as an individual shouldn't be subject to the state's um, control. Mm-hmm. And then there's also, of course, this marketplace of ideas metaphor that you had referenced before. It started with John Milton and Areopagitica, yeah. uh, John Stuart Mill discussed a little bit. And then, of course, in Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes's dissent in Abrams, he brought it up, although not using marketplace of ideas as the phrase that came that came later, but writing, when men have realized that time has upset many in fighting face, they may come to believe even more than they believe the very foundations of their own conduct, that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade and ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. Do you disagree with that? Um, I or do just, you just not think it's sufficient? It's not sufficient, um, and and that's you know the failure of marketplace of ideas. What I what I mean there is that 
It's just not enough. And I do think, and I, honestly, I do think it applies to a pretty small chunk of what we actually talk about, mm-hmm. about, um, about who, that tells, that gives great insight into who we are, what our world looks like, all, all, all of this kind of stuff. And we understand this when we study other animals or other phenomena, that almost everything um, about us, uh, you know, is, is, is worth knowing. And I mean, this partially comes from the fact that I've been probably reading more psychology um, than uh, law for a couple of years since I was working on my book, um, Coddling the American Mind, with my uh, friend and famous social psychologist, uh, Jonathan Haidt. And, you know, you, you, when you <laughs> I, I do the typical uh, thing that seems to be required in every book about nature versus nurture these days is I talk about prairie voles um, mm-hmm. in, in the um, – uh, in the article, and if you if you read a lot of popular nonfiction, you're going to see this come up a lot. But prairie voles are famously monogamous, um, but and very cute and adorable, uh, absolutely adorable. Uh, but uh, uh, and apparently, if you um, if you interfere with you know, one uh, some other genetic information or interfere with their production of oxytocin, um, a hormone. Uh, they can very uh, uh, quickly turn into Lotharios, into into Don Drapers, into in, into into voles that are no longer monogamous. They sleep around, and uh, the way I think we approach um, uh, free speech is uh, sometimes this very kind of almost forgive it, forgive me for saying so, sort of childish kind of oh, if you have horrible thoughts, keep them to yourself um, because I find them unpleasant. And there's something really this this is. Unfortunately, like I, I think that some of the arguments for censorship really come down to this kind of like, well, that's that's not a nice thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, meanwhile, it's like, but is it important to know uh, about your world? Do you really not choose to know that? Are you going to chide the prairie vold, you know, for like, don't behave like that? Are you going to study it? Are you going to try to figure out why it thinks that? Why it's the anomaly. Yep. And I, so I do think that this is a little bit more of a sort of scientific way of looking at, um, uh, at speech. Uh, and I think that... It sort of turns the uh, low-value um, speech on its head. Meanwhile, there's also just the practical problem. As, as, a, as a First Amendment lawyer, um, all of us have probably found times where we're trying to use language that talks about the success of ideas in the marketplace for things like, um, you know, anything from like uh, cr- crude lyrics in a song to lap dances to uh, to all these things that we we all agree are expression, but they don't really fit an argument winning model. Mm-hmm. They, they 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 fit more of a peculiarity of human nature, um, a peculiarity of human expression, peculiarity of what's on people's minds. Um, and we've all had to write briefs where we're trying to sort of shoehorn um, some of these things that are more. Uh, carnal or fundamental or um, ab- uh, abstract or about preference into a model that is about argumentation and about the success of whether or not my argument is correct. Yeah. I, th- I feel like when you talk about the marketplace of ideas metaphor to students these days or people who are just being introduced to the topic for the first time, it, it kind of presumes what Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes essentially presumed that the start Darwinian idea that truth will win out. Yeah. But we live in a society where truth doesn't always win oh, of out. Of course not. I think in the long run, it tends to. Because it's true. Yeah, because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in the short term, you see untruths win out all the time. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I, I listened to your last podcast, and I really have to read that. Um, uh, what was the name of the professor? Again? Uh, Joseph Bloker. Yeah, really cool. Uh, really cool podcast. Highly recommend it. 
smart guy. He got published in the Yale and Harvard Law Review journals within the same week. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> if, you're, if you're not an academia, you, you don't know how big of a deal that is. <laughs> I, I think they Those would. two, in addition to the 17 other academic articles he's published on the First Amendment. He's also a Second Amendment scholar, too. But yeah, you were saying you had read it. Yeah, it, it, it was a, it was definitely um, a, a, a very cool read. Yeah, and his argument essentially was that in an analyzing the marketplace of ideas, there should be some sort of privilege for expert knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of think of that as being a little bit platonic in the sense yeah. that we have our philosopher kings who, but he he said it was more essentially being able to explain why you believe something. Yeah. Um, how that so, would actually, so, and I just want to clarify. Sorry, I, I didn't read it. I, I, I listened, you listened to the podcast. To the podcast. It, yeah, it was awesome. But you should read it. Yeah. Anyway, um, that, and it's interesting because I, I'm, uh, John Rausch is working on a on a book, and, and I'm very honored. Uh, you know, with this one of my free speech heroes, and mm-hmm. he asked me for some feedback on this on this book that he's working on. And man, that guy's brilliant. Like he's he's just so it's just such an honor to, uh, to be reading him. But it definitely it was like the third conversation I've had in a day. Um, that involves people trying to um, figure out how to privilege uh, expertise. Now, this is a very important sort of epistemic job uh, to remind people knowing even the smallest amount of truth is really, really hard for human beings, and it requires institutions, it requires back and forth, it requires checking and double-checking, um, because there's a sense that experts you know, are, are, are being uh, are being ignored. And, and uh, But at the same time, when it comes to and and that really closely relates to the um, uh, the special privileges of academic freedom, mm-hmm. um, but mine is a little bit sort of sidestepping that to a degree. It, it's it's more or less saying that if we are going to think as experts, as if we are going to think as open minded, um, we should really take seriously the project of humanism, which is to know us and our world as it is. Um, and like I said, that's an ongoing process. We'll never fully get there. It will have changed by the time we get, uh, uh, by, by the time we get some knowledge, but we honestly do not stand a chance um, if we don't know what people really And that, that actually made me think of Annie Duke's book, Thinking in oh, Bats, man, which yeah. essentially says that book. the more information you have, the, the better you're able to make a decision. And the decision still might not be the correct one. Yeah. But the way you have the fighting chance is by getting as much information yeah. as possible. It's almost possible to have perfect information. Yeah. But as we discussed it's in that podcast. literally po- impossible to have perfect information. Yeah. <laughs> as we discussed in that po- a podcast, censorship is a way to prevent you from yeah. getting information. Uh, I'm going to do the obnoxious nerd thing and mention Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, <laughs> which is probably like outsized for its. Uh, it actually d- it probably gets too much credit because it actually re- applies to a relatively narrow thing. But basically, the principle is you can't, you know, look at uh, atomic motion. You can't look at at, at um, the motion of very small particles without interfering with them. So if like just ob- the act of observing, observing. something um, interferes with it, you're always going to have some ambiguity in what you can know. Yeah. Now, before I let you go here, uh, I want to steel man your argument by presenting two challenges to it. Uh, the first is Uh-oh. one you actually bring up in your article or hat tip uh, in your article, which is national security. Is there a scenario yes. in which uh, not <laughs> yeah. giving people access to perfect information or to as much information as possible is better than the alternative. This is absolutely something that um, whenever I talk about this, you know, like I said, I'm trying to work on metaphors. I'm trying to work on things that that stay in people's mind that can help them think through a sort of more expansive vision of this. So I'll say things like, 
um, you know, you are not safer for knowing less about the world in which you live, which I think is pretty clarifying. And there's this dude on Twitter um, who, like, who always chimes in saying, well, what about, na- what about national security secrets? And I did I leave – do I still have a footnote about that in there? No, I don't think the footnote so – <laughs> we don't have a great way to insert footnotes in that, the Fire's right. blog post. Uh, but Greg had a – I had, had, had footnotes <laughs> um, in it. And we're, we'll, hopefully we'll figure out a way to do that. We did, we did figure out a way. It just requires some coding that's maybe beyond the yeah. reach of the people who typically post are <laughs> anyway the technology to do footnotes is decades away <laughs> um and so yeah i had that in there because i wanted to nod at it i didn't but i didn't want to put it in the main text because i do mean this overwhelmingly mm-hmm. are there exceptions sure but uh, but when people make the national security exception to free speech i get a little i bristle a little bit because mm-hmm. you look at all the stuff that we consider top secret now or what we uh what we uh, dub top secret in the u.s government and it's ridiculous it, it's this huge swath of things around actual important secrets Meanwhile, the Supreme Court has talked about the, the example they give is, you know, the time and location of the troop transports going out yeah. um, being like a, the perfect example of a national security secret that uh, you could potentially enforce because you're trying to protect the lives of people on that troop transport. Um, now, the funny thing is, though, the, uh, and that, that's a really persuasive, really vivid um, argument that actually does ma- uh, make, make a point about uh, knowing less sometimes or the public knowing less is actually really quite protective. Um, but I don't want to nod at that too much. Because we use the troop transport thing to say to, to keep um, uh, private, you know, the fact that someone met with a uh, with a diplomat and and it was really embarrassing, you know, or, like, or the failures of Vietnam with the Pentagon Papers. Oh, the Pentagon Papers, yeah, and and that, the, the, no, like for example, knowing that that people had been saying within the government, yeah, we're never going to win this thing. Um, it's just going to be a meat grinder. Uh, that was something that they kept as a national security secret, um, and uh, and you know, the public after fighting this for. A really long time and losing 50,000 people uh, was a little bit like, oh, that would have been nice to know that earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so the second question I had was disinformation. Yes. Uh, it is a sort of information, yes. but it's information that is meant to uh, make people think falsehoods. Yeah. So what is your, what are your thoughts about that? Because you do have, especially with the coronavirus, you have Facebook taking down articles yeah. uh, that they deem disinformation. You've had, have had Twitter doing this with Russian bots and trolls yeah. for a while as they seek to sow uh, discord here in the United States. How, how should we think about that? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm not going to pretend to have a perfect answer on that. And I think that this is something that's kind of haunting First Amendment people at the moment is how easily um, we can be tricked. And particularly if, if people know, my, my brother does um, knows a lot about marketing and research and, and, and demographics, and he's freaked out by the fact that, you know, you can have you can you can find out so much about an individual's preferences that you can really manipulate them um, with and their biases with, and, and their and, and their biases at a level that's really uh, really distressing. I do I, I think it I think it's honestly one of the reasons why I'm a little bit less of an anonymity hawk and uh, Nico knows this about <laughs> me than uh, than other First Amendment people for this reason. Um, if you know it's an individual and you, and you know which individual it is, you can be, you know, you, you can, they develop a reputation and you can figure out if they're reliable or if they're just trying mm-hmm. to spread falsehoods when they're bots, when they're people who are elsewhere trying to, uh, trying to, uh, uh, trying to mess with you, it's, it's harder to have that. So in some ways, you know, greater transparency, um, uh, makes a big difference. You know, I, a good example of this, um, uh, was when, a lot of websites moved to having their comments tied to people's Facebook. You had to sign in with Facebook yeah. because it was harming to your reputation reputation to just make up stuff. And they also is a it's a decent, not perfect, but decent proxy for you being uh, uh, you're being a real person. 
Um, but yeah, the, the handling of how we actually handle um, disinformation campaigns, it's going to have to be idiosyncratic. It's going to have to require um, uh, some, some, some thinking, uh, uh, some, uh, some serious thinking about it. Uh, and and I, th- I think we're still trying to figure it out. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you wanted to add on this this topic that, that you know, anything else that you're thinking that's going to be the fodder for a blog post moving forward? Oh, or yeah. is this just kind of your, well, your initial salvo the, on the, this topic? The, attorney, uh, the Eternally Radical Idea blog is also just an opportunity for me essentially to workshop stuff. And I hope that, you know, uh, I, I was talking to a, a donor yesterday who seemed a little shy about saying that he disagreed with my theory in, uh, in the article. And I was like, Great. Yeah, let's hear it. Let's, <laughs> let's hear, hear it. it. This is all, you know, it's an experiment as all life is an experiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually part of the quote, right? It's, uh, one, of, it's one of my all-time the, favorites. One of the Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes quotes that Greg has right at the beginning of article is that that at any rate is the theory of our Constitution. It is an experiment as all of life, life is an experiment. Such a wonderful every idea. year, not if not every day, we have to wager our salvation upon some prophecy based upon imperfect knowledge. Show off. Again, <laughs> that's just such good writing. Um, the the uh, yeah, and so I'm going to be you know trying this stuff out, and I, I would love to know if I'm wrong on on, on things. Uh, the the big thing, and it might be uh, more a month or more before we get done with this, is I'm doing a large article with Adam Goldstein and Ryan Weiss um, uh, called "Catching Up with Coddling," which mm-hmm. is trying to update the data that we had in coddling the American mind. Um, as we get closer, we're not quite there yet, but closer to two years since we handed in handed in the manuscript. Unfortunately, what we find is that most of the uh, trends have gotten worse. Um, some of them have gotten more. Uh, this is this is a horrible way to put it. More interesting, um, <laughs> which we'll talk about. Uh, we'll talk about in the piece. But this will be a nice opportunity for me to make, um, uh, in addition to th- pieces like coddling the American mind, to try to bring in all these people who have read the book to, you know, hopefully help us in the, in the battle for free speech, both on and off campus and for understanding the philosophy of it, to try to get those readers excited about what we do. That, that That's a big goal of things like catching up with coddling. But another goal of the eternally radical uh, idea is just to kind of have a modular argument. And what I mean by that is having Rather than every time someone says this one particular type of frustrating thing online, having to respond to it, um, you know, drop what I'm doing and respond to it, I can be like, I've made this argument for 20 years. What, you know, for, for one that's coming up pretty soon is just my overall belief um, you know, that I am a First Amendment exceptionalist. And what, what I mean by that is that um, sometimes you can get kind of poo-pooed if you're in, uh, in academic circles or in other countries that, um, oh, you're, you're, you know, you're silly, ridiculous, crazy First Amendment law that nobody else has. And then I start explaining, you know, what the principles are. And people are like, that doesn't sound really as dumb as I thought it would sound. Mm. And what I'm saying is that even though it is, a, you know, quote unquote, just a body of law, uh, this is what I believe about a First Amendment jurisprudence. It is the best thought out um, theory on how to have free speech in the real world, contributed to by some of the best minds um, in U.S. history, including people like Louis Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes and, and Justice Brennan and Thurgood Marshall over, you know, basically a century. So there's so many things we can actually draw um, from the law of First Amendment about that are actually good principles for life, like viewpoint discrimination. Um, and actually, viewpoint discrimination is one of the big no-nos in First Amendment law. Like there's, there are very few circumstances in which singling someone out for their particular viewpoint it, it, uh, can be quashed. And that's one of the reasons why I, you know, I'm somewhat critical of the marketplace of ideas argument, because under my theory, all opinions always, mm-hmm. even if they're just dumb, 
um, are, are are protected or important. They yeah. tell us or, something. Or, or they, they, they tell they, they tell us something about about the world. Um, so you know, I'm going to be writing um, you know uh, a, a lot more on this topic to try to put together an argument in uh, in pieces. Well, there it is, the Eternally Radical Idea blog, and Greg's first piece is Coronavirus and the Failure of the Marketplace of Ideas. The subtitle is Considering the Lab in the Looking Glass. Greg, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Always fun. And stay healthy. <laughs> we need stay, stay safe and sane. Uh, the, the, this, this thing sounds nasty, just to, to understate. Very good. If you have any thoughts about Greg's argument about the pure informational theory of free speech, please do send them our way. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. They do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thank you again for listening. <laughs>